Well, friends, you are listening to Radio Pulpit and Radio Cape Pulpit with me, Mark Penrith, your host, along with Tepo Pitzel, my partner in crime extraordinaire, both from Crystal Park Baptist Church, Benoni, where we serve the local church as staff, caring for the souls of men and changing light bulbs as and when necessary. Shout out to everyone in Benoni, along with everyone in Ekurileni, in the wider Gauteng region and in South Africa as a whole, recognizing that we have people listening into the show uh, from all over our wonderful nation. So whether you are in Cape Town, Stellenbosch, Abecha, um, Pofwada, or Da'ar, we are glad that you are listening in with us this morning. Listen, Table Talk really is your opportunity to join the conversation. We will be doing uh, questions and answers, uh, engaging with you live on air this morning. So as we speak, do engage with us, send through your questions or the comments that you have on your mind. How might you do that, you rightly ask? Um, well, you can join us by posting on Facebook. Our Facebook page is Radio Pulpit, Radio Console, and right now we are streaming. You can just drop a comment down below. You can send in a voice note on WhatsApp. I love hearing your voice on WhatsApp and on Telegram. The telephone number is 082-657-2729, and our sound desk controller, making sure that all the lights stay on Mpo, will make sure that those are played live on air. You can also tweet, uh, if you are twit, you can uh, tweet at the handle, at the handle, <laughs> I sound my age, um, the handle is at 657am, um, and we also do take live phone in uh, uh, conversations, our studio number is 012-334-1322, all of those contact details right now are on the Facebook live stream if you missed anything. We are looking forward to chatting to you. Uh, in the co controls this morning, as I said, pressing the buttons and making sure that all the lights stay on is our co-laborer in this ministry. Uh, Mpo, it is good to have you with us this morning, brother. And actually right now, never mind where you are in South Africa or beyond, why don't you drop in a hi on Facebook, on Twitter, on, um, on Telegram, on uh, uh, WhatsApp or whatever mechanism you're using, we are looking forward to greeting you on air this morning and bringing your questions and your answers from God's Word uh, into the conversation. This morning we're going to start the show as usual uh, with a guest. Um, Michael Swain joins us from an organization called 4SA. 4SA is Freedom of Religion South Africa. It's a legal advocacy organization that works to protect and promote your constitutional right to religious freedom in South Africa. This insert is so important. I mean, it's really important to me each week as I, I hear what the national debate is. Um, but it's really important to you as a listener as well, because in truth, the conversations that freedom of religion is having uh, with the state, um, with parliament, um, and in court cases around South Africa, this conversation ends up affecting uh, our lives. It, it ends up affecting how we live out our lives in our country. And so Michael Swain is the executive director of 4SA. He studied law abroad and has been successful in business. He is the co-founder of the His People Every Nation Church Movement in South Africa. And he joins us from where he resides down in the 
Cape, the fairest Cape Michael. It is good to have you with us this morning, brother. Thank you, Mark. Always great to be on the show. So as you join us today, I think the most pressing issue that we that is before us or before you guys um, is certainly the court case that you are engaged in, uh, Freedom of Religion South Africa, NPC versus the Cogta Minister and others. Uh, the case has come before the court. If I remember correctly, you guys started on Thursday uh, already, so that was yesterday. Uh, maybe you can just fill me in and give us some background to the case. I see you nodding, shaking your head vigorously. And so cor correct me, I, I was watching Facebook and, uh, and trying to track what was going on, but, but correct, uh, correct my misunderstanding. No, thank you, Mark. So just for clarity, the actual hearing is taking place virtually in the Johannesburg High Court, and it begins on Monday, so this coming Monday. Monday the 22nd to Wednesday the 24th, that's when it's going to run. So it's actually going to be a consolidation of our case with three other similar cases. Uh, but perhaps it would be good to give a little bit of background as to why we're in court in the first place. Because I think one of the things that we need to be very careful of is that we don't just simply get used to the way things are. We need to understand that we live in a country where we have a constitution, and that constitution defines the way that things not only should be but ultimately must be unless and of course that constitution is changed either by a change to it or by something that the constitutional court rules it cannot be changed simply because government passes laws or regulations which remove some of the freedoms which are guaranteed by the constitution so let's look at this in the context of the pandemic you may remember uh, in a long, long time ago in a universe far away, uh, we were told, please, please uh, be patient with us. Just give us 15 days to flatten the curve. Well, Two here we now flatten the curve. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, here, well here, here we now are, uh, you know, some getting on now for two years later. And we are still living under restrictions, under erosions and removals of our constitutional rights. We still have a curfew. You know, we, we have to be at home and in our houses by a certain date. We still have restrictions on our freedom of worship, albeit those restrictions have been lifted significantly. It's now 750 indoors and 2000 outdoors, but we still have all the social distancing, health, hygiene, sanitation, record keeping protocols in place. And we're not arguing against that, by the way, but I think it's important to point out that we do have a situation where, yes, there may have been originally a need to take fairly hard action, because at the beginning of the pandemic, remember, almost two years ago, nobody was quite sure what COVID-19 would look like. We didn't have any data really on it. We didn't have any indication of who it would impact and who it would not impact or how severely it would impact. So there were a lot of unknowns. And a state of national disaster was declared. Now, one of the things that's problematic about that state of national disaster is that the National Disaster Act was not designed for this type of disaster, so to speak. It was really designed for the situation where there might have been an earthquake in a local area that did some level of devastation. But the idea is it's a temporary situation, not one that is designed to go on forever and ever, because particularly the National Disaster Act allows for no parliamentary oversight. It transfers all power to a small executive, particularly uh, to uh, COGTA, the Cooperative Governance and Traditional Affairs Ministry, 
which is headed, as you may know, by Minister Kosozana Dlamini Zuma. And ultimately, Kogta decides what will or will not happen in the nation as a whole. So there is no redress from Parliament. Parliament cannot overturn the National Disaster Act. It is simply extended uh, time to time by simply the stroke of a pen from the minister. And she has not lifted to this point the national disaster state and the regulations are still in place. And there's no indication from government when they will be lifted. So what we need to understand, therefore, is that our constitutional rights in this process and in this time period have been severely eroded. And yes, at the time when things began, and which is why we are hopeful in terms of our case coming up, the courts were reluctant, hesitant to intervene, because again, there wasn't enough information and they weren't prepared to take responsibility, understandably, for what might or might not have happened in terms of you know adverse consequences if they just overturned government's regulations. But now the situation has changed substantially. Now we have a lot of data which gives an indication of where the situation is going. And bear in mind this, that whenever government does erode or reduce a constitutional freedom, it is bound by the constitution itself, section 36, to do so only in a way that is reasonable, rational, justifiable, proportional, fit for purpose. There must be no lesser way of actually dealing with the situation by eroding the right. In other words, you must always allow the maximum right to remain, even though it may have to be limited temporarily or even for a specific circumstance. It is not designed to be something which goes on forever and a day. And so what we are saying when we go to court to argue this case is that government have done things and continue to do things which are unconstitutional and indeed unlawful because they have exceeded the parameters within which government, we believe, uh, should operate when it comes to eliminating specifically uh, the rights to religious freedom or the right to religious freedom guaranteed by Section 9 of our Constitution. No, Michael, it, it really is troubling. It is worrying and it has gone on now for, I mean, going on two years. Um, it just, it feels like it's dragging out longer and longer and longer. I, I, I do know that you've had opportunity at least to talk to government from time to time. I know that there have been meetings. Um, but, but on this particular issue before this particular court case, have you been able to engage with government? <laughs> how have those engagements gone? Um, you know, how, how does the process work pre-trial? Well, essentially, yes. Obviously, the, the last thing you want to do is to go to court. A court really is is the final uh, redress, if you like. And again, problematic because, of course, as I say, there was no balancing to executive decisions by Parliament itself. And so, court is actually the only way. The judiciary is the only way that you can go uh, to actually seek redress or to seek for some form of clarification of what government is doing. Uh, so, yes, we certainly did. You know, for I say we represent and have represented in this matter uh, somewhere between 15 and 18 and a half million people from time to time, uh, given that mandate by the senior leadership of organizations who typically aren't represented in other structures. And one of the things that we're actually saying, although we have been involved in two meetings with the president when these lockdown regulations were discussed, we've had specific meetings with the COGTA minister, we've met with the COGTA parliamentary portfolio committee as well. But despite that, 4SA has been, and even guarantees that were given to us, by the way, uh, 4SA, despite the constituency that we represent, have in fact been excluded 
from giving input into this situation, which again, we say is unlawful because it doesn't follow the democratic process. We should have given our constituency that we represent been given a more say in what has happened. Whether that would have resulted to this point in a different outcome, I don't know. But the fact of the matter is that the case basically boiled down to this. In December last year, you might remember, there was an upward spike in infections and there was in the danger of hospitals being uh, overwhelmed. And generally speaking, there was a need to bring a harsher lockdown in the view of government. But the problem was this. What they did was they completely banned, shut down totally religious gatherings while allowing similar gatherings, for example, in casinos and in fitness clubs and so on, to continue. And our premise is very simple. Government can restrict and they can limit our constitutional rights, as I've already explained, but they cannot do so in a way that is unfairly discriminatory on one section of society versus another section of society. In other words, it must be justifiable. And our questions to them are very simple. Where is the data which shows that religious gatherings are more dangerous than these other gatherings? Where, given the fact that you could, at that time, sit in a casino side by side with somebody else pulling the handle of a slot machine, that was perfectly fine and lawful and good and well. And of course, bearing in mind, the whole premise of this is to prevent infections. Yet, if at some point, maybe it was you and me sitting there, God forbid, by the way, and our losses started to mount up and we decided that we needed to pray and ask God to help us to win because things are getting desperate. Uh, and I say this obviously in some level of jest, but here, just to prove the point, if we had at that point put our hands together and prayed for help, we could have been arrested and potentially put in jail. How is that reasonable? How is that logical even? You know, given the fact that you can sit uh, in a taxi, literally shoulder to shoulder with the person next to you, and that's okay. Taxis were running at you know, 50, 75%, 100% occupancy, and yet you, it is more dangerous to sit 1.5 meters apart masked up, sanitized, uh, properly, hygienically, you know, sprayed and, and all protocols in place, which I say is, is not a bad thing. But yet how come the one is okay and the other's not when it comes to either catching COVID or transferring the infection of COVID? Where is the data? Where is the science upon which government has relied? And our case is there is no science upon which government has relied. They cannot produce it because there is none to produce. And therefore, they cannot unfairly discriminate against the religious community and religious organizations and religious gatherings specifically by locking down in a different manner one gathering and not locking down a similar gathering. Either lock down everything. In other words, if the premise is that, well, all gatherings are unsafe in our view, well, then lock down everything equally. But don't discriminate one against the other. That is unconstitutional and that is unlawful. <laughs> okay, so the, the gambling analogy aside, uh, we'll deal with that during the biblical questions and answers in the next hour of the show. <laughs> I, I, I do think that you make a really good point. And, and obviously, this has been a major concern, both to pastors as well as to people in congregation, um, for, for the last you know, <laughs> when, uh, you know, two years, as we've been trying to wrap our minds around why our rights were so restrictively repressed while other people's you know, rights to go about 
uh, fair trade um, were, were enabled, um, and, it, and, it, and it has been a concern. Um, I noticed that, that in the actual um, uh, court papers, or, or, or in kind of like the title, it, it says, um, it talks of and others uh, in terms of uh, parties that are involved in this case. Um, uh, who, who are the various different role players? Obviously, freedom of religion is a role player. You mentioned a couple of other cases that are being brought together. Um, and then you also mentioned the Copter Minister and others. Who are the various different role players that will play a part um, as the case uh, winds out? Well, the, the, there were three other cases brought, in a sense, almost concurrently. Um, the South African National Christian Forum brought one, I think Solidarity brought one, and the Muslim Lawyers Association board one. So they are all asking for similar things and therefore they'll all be heard together. And others would be obviously the president, it would be, uh, I think it's the National Command Council, which is the council which actually seems to advise or um, you know, help to form, formulate these regulations. So the others, uh, essentially the Cocteau Minister is the primary party and 4SA is the primary party uh, in, in our particular case. Um, but all that to say is you know, this case is, is, is way overdue because we originally had this case set down for the 1st of February this year. So bear in mind, lockdown regulations came out the 29th, complete ban. It was then extended indefinitely on January the 11th. And so we brought an urgent application. And what happened was that the president was due to have one of his family chats uh, with us on the 3rd. Our case was on the 2nd. And so they brought forward the family chat uh, to the first so that he could basically then take away this restriction because had he got to court on the second then almost certainly we believe it was almost an acknowledgement they, that they would have lost but here's the problem then they go to court and they say well look this is now academic uh, it's what they call moot uh, you know we don't need to worry about this anymore because you know we, we, we've we, we've changed our minds we've done something different and now it's all okay well, the answer is no, it's not all okay, because at any time, as we then subsequently discovered, they did almost exactly the same type of thing in August this year, they can just simply change their minds again, and here we go. So we have now got a date in court because it is so important that we set and ask the court, this is the main thing that we're asking the court to do, we're asking the court to set the parameters to define the circumstances under which and to the extent to which government can remove religious freedom rights. What do they have to show? What do they have to do? What are the parameters? What are the frameworks? What are the principles which they must operate within in order to restrict religious freedom gatherings? And we're certainly saying that they cannot unfairly discriminate against um, religious gatherings while allowing others to take place. So that is what we're doing. And particularly when we're talking about freedom of religion here, we are talking about the constitutional right to freedom of religion in Section 15, which includes, as the Constitutional Court has already said, uh, the right to gather in person for people to collectively exercise their faith. And maybe just on that, I'd like to say that obviously many churches have gone to virtual. I mean, I know that you're live streaming this, for example, and that's good and well. But what they say have said internationally when this matter has come before the courts is worship light, if you like. In other words, watching a TV screen uh, or a computer screen or a smartphone or whatever does not replace, does not replace the right to worship together in person. And also in this country where the vast majority, we're talking about millions of people, simply don't have access to that type of technology. 
when you're saying to them, yes, but you can always worship in, in new ways, I think is how the president uh, put it, um, for them, they can't access these new ways. And therefore, for them, it means that their religious freedom rights have been completely eliminated. Yeah, I, I mean, just as a pastor, I can tell you that um, uh, as we've thought through it, the elders of the church that I represent, uh, we've come to the conclusion that while technology is a massive advantage uh, to the church, even our ability to have this conversation, you sitting in Cape Town, me sitting in Johannesburg, streaming to people all over the country, uh, is, is just a blessing of technology. While we acknowledge the benefits of technology, um, nothing can replace the need for incarnational worship. God's people together, worshiping Jesus Christ, their Lord and their Savior, singing to one another with songs, hymns, and spiritual songs, um, making melody in their hearts. Uh, nothing can replace physical incarnational gathering. Uh, and so whilst we appreciate um, the, the, the point regarding technology, Technology, uh, or, or, or saying that technology in some way can replace the need for physical gathering uh, is, is absolutely unacceptable and, and certainly doesn't sync with our understanding of the scriptures and with our understanding of the, um, of the imperative for God's people to synagogue together, to meet together according to the book of Hebrews. Um, and we are looking forward to a time where we can do so without any restrictions placed over us. Michael, as I'm listening to you, I want to play devil's advocate a little bit. Before you do that, before you do that, let me just oh, sure. maybe come back to the, the comment that you just made, because it's a very interesting one. You have given your interpretation of the scriptures in this regard. In other words, that it's, it's, a, it's an imperative. And for many people, yes, it is. They believe it's actually a commandment. And that although it might be something which they can not do for a time for some very good reason, it isn't something that they cannot do forever without actually being in disobedience to a specific commandment that God has given. M many people believe that. However, other people believe that the imperative is more to uh, take uh, a compassionate view of those who might be sick. And that's what Christ himself would have done. And they take that viewpoint and therefore they choose to not meet. So our position is simply this, because for us, say we are faith neutral. We are doctrinally neutral. We're not saying just because you can meet, you have to meet, or even if your church is meeting that you as a congregant should go. We just believe that if the science and the data says that there are certain parameters which need to take place so that gatherings can take place or not take place, they must be equally applied to all. If, if you're allowed to meet at whatever level, then you as the uh, church leader or the organization, religious organization leader, you should have the right to decide whether or not you believe it's the right thing to do or the safe thing to do or whatever reason you may have. And you can then open up. And obviously, you know, we believe that religious leaders particularly are very much those who care for the people that they oversee and they're not going to put them in danger. But even if the people in the congregation believe maybe I am in danger, well, take your own health risk because, or assess your own health risk. We know, for example, that older people, people over the age of 65 are particularly at risk from this. And therefore, yes, arguably those people should decide I'm not going to come to church, even though the church is open because of the risk. But the point is, it's got to be the choice of the religious leader to open or not, and the choice of the person whether or not to attend. 
it shouldn't be government deciding we're going to shut this group down of religious organizations and their freedom to worship completely while allowing other areas, but in a similar setting, in a similar context, to continue to operate. That is what's wrong with this. Yeah, Michael, uh, I think that point is so, so very well made. Uh, as, as you're talking, though, uh, I, I have the the faces of a number of you know dear friends, family in Christ that I love, um, who I've lost over the last two years, um, to COVID. The the reality is COVID is real. Um, it has taken a toll, a personal toll, um, even amongst our congregation. Um, I'm sensitive uh, to, to this public health issue that the government was faced with uh, two years ago, and even the public health issue that they faced with right now. Since we are living currently in a state of disaster, surely the government, and this is me playing devil's advocate, surely the government has the power to do whatever it sees fit to deal with this present crisis. The, the, the answer is, is yes and no. They obviously have uh, significant power to deal with this present crisis, but they cannot just make arbitrary decisions uh, and make them for the long haul and fundamentally change the context in which we live, unless they can show on an ongoing basis, on, an, on a basis which must be open to constant evaluation, that when they are removing or limiting our particularly religious freedom rights, there is a very legitimate and good reason why that is a good thing to do, why it is in the public interest. And again, they cannot then discriminate against other um, similar meetings or gatherings. There's you know, either the risk that uh, it's so great that no indoor gatherings should be allowed, or government accepts that indoor gatherings can be safely achieved if certain protocols in place. And again, we're, we're not advocating no protocols, that would be, uh, but, but, but again, we're in a situation now where we're close to two years into this pandemic. And among other things now, which is a big game changer, I believe, is that um, vaccinations are freely available. In other words, people can uh, take, uh, which is really a, a, a medical technological uh, breakthrough, they can take a vaccination, which regardless of what you think about vaccinations, and I'm certainly not an anti-vaxxer myself, um, they do give you a significant benefit in terms of not suffering if you do contract COVID very serious consequences. It is evident that uh, people are very unlikely to face highly adverse con uh, health consequences, death, hospitalization, and so on and so forth once they've had the vaccination. And, and people can do that now. And, and there are now, I understand increasingly, um, therapeutic drugs that are being produced, which even if you do contract it and you haven't been vaccinated in the first couple of days, if you take these drugs, which are just coming onto the market out here, um, you, you're not going to suffer the serious adverse consequences of hospitalization and, and even death. So we live in a different context now. And this is the data that government should be following. This is the data that government should be pursuing. There is no world in which we achieve zero COVID. In other words, where every infection is eliminated for all people for all time. We are going to have to come at some point to the understanding that this is an endemic situation. Uh, and I'm not saying it's not a serious endemic situation. And I'm not saying it doesn't have serious health consequences. And, and you rightly say, we've all had people who have uh, literally passed on during this. 
But the fact of the matter is, is that we are going to have to, at some measure, learn to live with it and learn to take the necessary precautions as best we can to avoid the worst consequences of it. But that cannot be the government can arbitrarily decide what it does forever and ever in a day. Uh, there is a point where this ceases to be a national disaster, i.e. something highly specific that we need extreme powers to deal with, and it becomes something which we must just regulate and learn to live with. And we, we, we believe that, uh, although that isn't the case that we're bringing, uh, we believe specifically that there must be a framework so that if, and, and it might happen again, it might be a different virus, it might be a different situation, but were this situation to arise again or something like it, we have now a legal precedent. Why is that so important? It's so important because if you have a legal precedent which says the circumstances and the extent to which government can act to eliminate religious freedom rights and they exceed that, then unlike the current situation, which as I explained in February, they just changed their mind and now here we are in November and we've already had another situation whereby they changed their mind again, they can't do that anymore because we will be able to go straight to court with the judgment, with the parameters, prove that they have exceeded them, and then those regulations will be immediately overturned. So this is a vital, if you like, barricade or framework for government overreach uh, in the future situations as well as in the present. Michael, I, I don't have a magic wand, nor do I have a crystal ball. But for a moment, if I did have a magic wand and I waved it and the court case fell to your favor, and uh, we had a crystal ball here this morning, we gazed into it and looked into the future. What would you hope that a court ruling would order if this case was successful? What, what's the best outcome? Well, the best outcome would be that it would declare that the lockdown, which banned completely religious gatherings while allowing other similar gatherings to take place was indeed unconstitutional and unlawful. Uh, we secondly, and very importantly, do you know that religious workers are still not formally recognized as essential workers under the regulations? So although the president said back in May last year that religious leaders were essential workers, and so they are, because they are very much in the front lines of these things. And as you and I know, many of them have paid the ultimate price for their faithfulness and their service in conducting funerals and visiting the sick and praying for people and delivering food and what have you. They are essential workers, but they're still not recognized in these regulations as essential workers, which means potentially that should we go back into a higher level of lockdown, like, you know, the level five, level four, that again, religious workers would be uh, stuck in curfew and they would not be able to go out and do what they absolutely need to do. So that's the other thing that we're going for. Um, so yes, we want to know what is the situation? What are the circumstances? What is the extent? And particularly, we're saying that government cannot just arbitrarily make these decisions. It must be able to show that the decisions that it has made, even if we might feel that they're a bit harsh or a bit of a over, over, over the top or whatever we might think that they are, that doesn't matter. If they can show the science, the data upon which they rely, then fair and well. But that is what they must show, we believe. They must demonstrate in order to be able to show that they've met the Section 36 requirements, that what they did was justifiable, that it was reasonable, that it was proportionate. And how can they do that? Uh, or how can they justify that unless they can show the data? And they cannot hide behind, well, this is confidential information. No, it's not confidential information when you are using it to fundamentally impact, erode, and 
even eliminate, as happened before, our fundamental right to religious freedom. You know, Michael, as I'm sitting listening to you, obviously I'm listening to you with a couple of hats on. I'm a citizen <laughs> and I'm, I'm living in this crazy upside down, turned around world and I'm as frustrated as every other citizen. At times I've been as fearful as every other citizen because we've lacked knowledge, we haven't known how to respond. But one of the other hats that I have on all the time is a pastor hat. And I, I remember back to when this whole thing started and, uh, and feeling as if there was a, a certain amount of, um, uh, of uh, the word oversight. Uh, in, in other words, uh, it, was, it, was, it was sad that, um, that, that religious workers weren't recognized uh, as essential workers. And it was sad for this reason. I, I really believed that as we went into these major lockdowns, the social cohesion of society um, was beginning to tear. People were dealing with issues and, and didn't have their trusted advisors, counselors um, uh, near them at the time. It, it was, it was a, a, a very bad um, decision not to include social workers, uh, uh, sorry, uh, religious workers um, as part of essential services. Uh, and, and I thought it would be rectified, especially as this has gone on and on and on. And we've seen the very fabric of our nation actually starting to fray and starting to tear in some very, very scary ways. I, I hope government does, um, does uh, observe and recognize um, this short-sightedness um, as soon as possible. You know, Michael, we, we've held you on to the call for as long as we can. This is an incredibly important uh, conversation. Thank you so much for giving us your time. I would like to point any listeners that are engaged in the conversation and would like more information um, to where they can get it. And my understanding is probably the best place would be to go to the 4SA website where you have videos, where you have links to... Um, to polls at times and, and various different other information. And, and that website is 4sa.org.za or if like me, you can't remember, it's <laughs> such an easy website. You can always just type it freedom of religion uh, SA into your browser and Google will get you there. Um, and I'm sure that I'll also just uh, put a link into the show notes or into the comments uh, on Facebook so that people can easily get to your website and uh, sign up to the newsletter and stay abreast of what's going on in terms of the conversation between uh, the church uh, that you guys so often represent very well uh, and the state uh, in matters of religious freedom in South Africa. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Mark, if I could just say in closing, one of the things where we would really ask people to help us with is to actually donate towards this case. Law is a very expensive business, and we've had a brilliant, brilliant team of other legal minds, not just those who work specifically for 4SA, who are helping us to fight this case, senior counsel, etc. And were we to, to give you just an indication, were the reasonable fees to be calculated for where we are at this point, which is just about to go for the second time to the High Court, we would be looking at paying out approximately 1.5 million rand. Now, to give you an indication of how that is in relation to 4SA's budget, that is literally more than our whole annual budget. Now, people are doing it out of the goodness of their heart. Uh, they're doing it because they believe uh, that we need to live in a place where we can exercise our religious freedom rights. But to the extent to which people could assist us to cover these costs, 
that would be greatly appreciated and you can also do that on our website page. Michael, thanks again for your time. I do trust that uh, the Lord blesses you and goes before you and uh, keenly look forward uh, to the outcomes of this case. God bless. Well, we, 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 we'll, we'll be keeping it updated on our Facebook page all next week. So uh, <laughs> you just watch the Facebook page, Freedom of Religion SA, and you can see it all. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, friends, uh, those of you who are listening, uh, you are uh, with us on Table Talk this morning, uh, tracking together with myself, Mark Penrith, along with my partner in crime, Teppo Pitzel. Uh, we started off by chatting to our friend Michael Swain um, from 4SA uh, regarding a case which will be coming before the court, but we're about to change gear and to go into the next phase of our programming uh, this morning um, as we look at various different questions uh, that you have concerning God's Word. Um, and we are going to be spending the next hour and a bit going through those questions, really looking forward to hearing the kinds of questions that you raise. Um, and I'm going to start off by just uh, greeting one or two folk that have already said hi on Facebook. Peter Smith, a long-time listener, is uh, listening to the first half and will catch up later um, because the, the show is obviously saved uh, to Facebook. And uh, Peter, you'd be welcome to listen to the Q&A there. Uh, Dorothy, another long-time listener, this time from Soweto, uh, greets us and is listening on the radio. It is great to have you with us, Dorothy. Thank you so much for joining us uh, this morning. Had a couple of folk that have engaged with us on WhatsApp and on Telegram. Uh, got a question in from Janice. Uh, looking forward to answering that shortly. Janice, it is related to eschatology, Tepo, so get ready, <laughs> brother. <laughs> uh, as well as a number of other people. Um, good morning from Armenia. It's so nice to hear the word of God. Bless you all. It's the first time I think think that we've had uh, someone from Armenia um, joining in. Um, and uh, uh, Willem, it looks like you have a very South African sounding surname, um, but, uh, but clearly an expat abroad. Great to have you with us this morning. Thanks for joining us this morning. Uh, and then a couple of questions coming in from our longtime listener, Teresa, uh, looking forward uh, to chatting uh, uh, through those. So let's get started. Uh, Teps? Yeah. We've got a couple of questions this morning yes. that have come in. The first question is related. Uh, it's very theological, brother. It is <laughs> related to salvation. You thought I was going to go straight to uh. eschatology, didn't you? <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, we will hit eschatology uh, in round two of the questions, maybe after the break. The first question is related to salvation. Mm -hmm. It's related to soteriology, mm -hmm. and it's related to the order of salvation. <laughs> Please explain to me what is the order of salvation. Um, how it relates to Calvinism and Arminianism. You mm. might need to explain what those two <laughs> words mean. Mm -hmm. And does it make a difference at all? With a question mark. Tips, over to you. So does the order of salvation make a difference at all? Yeah. Okay. Okay, firstly... Yo, 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 yo. That's a heavy one. <laughs> so, but anyway, um, the order of salvation as we see it in scripture, uh, obviously starts with God. So God predestines people to salvation, which is something that happens even before the foundations of the world. And then um, in on earth, um, how that plays out 
is that um, God sends His Son to die for those who would be saved. <laughs> now that is that is that is that is very um, uh, what is this pointed to 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 a certain or a certain a certain context. So God sends His Son to atone for the sins of those who would be saved. <laughs> now. What that then does is, if we if we look at Romans chapter eight, verse from verse twenty eight, then we would see that order of salvation. Maybe maybe I should just read it, because that would that would help us um, get the flow that uh, Paul uses. So Romans eight. Let me get there quickly. Okay, uh, <clears throat> I'm there. Uh, 28. There we go. So, um, Paul says this, and we know that all things work together for, um, for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And then here is, uh, so, so there we know that all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So now let's see what, what that looks like. It says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So now there's a foreknowledge, which is that predestination. And that foreknowledge happens before, um, before even um, the world was created. Um, at the foundations of the earth, because even there, if you look in Ephesians, we we have we have this reference to um, 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 God having uh, having decided or having uh, designed salvation to look this way, and He designed that even before the foundations of the earth. So that is what election is, and so He goes on to say. Um, for those whom he called um, for, the, for his purpose, for, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed. So now there's that predestination that happens. And that predestination is for the conforming to the likeness of Christ. So that's, ex that's still that same group of people. And then he says, um, so that or in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined. Now look, here's the link to the predestination which happened before the foundations of the earth. He also called. Now, <laughs> the, the calling, so there are two types of calls. There's the external call or the general call, which is um, the gospel being proclaimed to everyone. Um, and everyone hears the gospel. <laughs> and everyone is supposed to hear the gospel. But then here we have a particular call, which is an internal call. And this internal call is basically what God does himself. So like there's a drawing. Um, I'm thinking now of, is it, is it um, Matthew? Matthew chapter 10. Oh, uh, uh, John 6, those whom he draws um, to the Son or to believe. And basically that as well is also linked to Ezekiel 36, which talks about God changing the heart of stone into the heart of flesh. And so there's that calling that makes the receivers or the, 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 the audience receptive of this call to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so nobody does that by their own will or by their own strength or by their own uh, might, but it is firstly given 
to them by God. Now, I think I've just explained what Calvinism is. So, 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 so now with Calvin theology, that's basically how it happens. Now, with Arminianism, um, it doesn't happen that way. So it's not that God um, draws people to himself first or that God changes the heart of stone into the heart of flesh first. But then it's that God gives this general grace to everybody and there you are. It's called prevenient grace. So, so, so it happens before and therefore the person can then decide because God has met them halfway. <laughs> now the person can then decide, okay, you know what? I think I'm going to grab this opportunity or not. So, but when we look at the, when we look at scriptures and we re, we hear of Jesus saying, those whom the father gave me, I will lose none. Um, and so those, there's a particular people that God gives to his um, to his son, which are those whom he comes to atone for, um, bleed for, or die for on the cross. And of those people that are predestined, that are given to the son, will by no means be lost. And yeah. Okay, so like I'm listening to what you're saying. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of big words in there, yeah. a lot of like heavy theology yeah. in there. If I had to sum up, mm-hmm what you've said in ways that I hope um, maybe my kids would understand or in ways that um, maybe a listener might understand, it really comes down to this. Who is sovereign in salvation? Definitely. Is God sovereign in all things, Mm -hmm. the sovereign creator of the heavens and the earth, the sovereign creator of man in his own image, Mm -hmm. um, the the sovereign judge over all the world ultimately, Mm -hmm. um, is God sovereign over all things, including the salvation of man? So Mm -hmm. in other words, um, was Jonah correct when in the belly of the fish as he Praise to God who had sovereignly sent a wind and sovereignly sent a whale and sovereign or let's not say whale, let's go with fish. <laughs> and sovereignly sent a fish. And yeah. and and God who is preserving him in this belly of a fish as, as Jonah prays out to God and then declares salvation belongs to the Lord yeah. in the context of the possibility of God deciding to save a people group that Jonah hates Mm -hmm. (laughs) in his very bones, the Ninevites. Mm -hmm. Was Jonah correct when he said salvation belongs to the Lord, yes or no? And and I I think in the context of Jonah's prayer, Jonah was talking both of his own present salvation Mm -hmm. in terms of his temporal salvation, but he was also talking in terms of eternal salvation. In that prayer, he's talking about you know, praising God in the in the assembly of the saints and in heaven above. Mm. Um, the the bottom line is salvation either belongs to the Lord or it doesn't. Yeah. Jonah was right or he wasn't. And it would seem to me that the order of salvation, which you've laid out, where it begins with the foreknowledge of God, a mm-hmm. relational foreknowledge of God with the people he hasn't even created yet, yeah. and then an, an election which happens even before the foundations of the world, mm-hmm. uh, and, and then the creation of man in his own image, uh, and, and ultimately the regeneration of man, enabling man ultimately mm-hmm. To respond to this irrevocable call of God, the sovereign call of God yeah. in his life. That that is a 
good biblical description of how God goes about the process of salvation. Is it though also true to say that there is both a biblical Godward angle as we look at salvation, but there is also um, an angle by which uh, that we see. (laughs) I mean, the, the truth is, I remember the day that I was saved mm. so well. It was 21, 22 years ago. Yeah. I remember the church that I was saved in, the seat that I was sitting in, the sermon that was preached, Acts yeah. chapter 7 and 8 uh, until verse 4. I, I, remember, I remember just this compelling wave of at first guilt for my sin before yeah. a sovereign God. Yeah. A- and then this response, and it, and it welled up. It was an emotional response that welled up within me mm-hmm. a- and then spilt out of my eyes as, as I wept yeah. quite loudly at the time a- in response to what was going on in my heart of heart. Mm. And I responded to this call of salvation. And I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ as my Lord and my Savior. Yeah. Is it true that there's both a divine aspect of salvation mm-hmm. where God sovereignly plays this all out in his foreknowledge and according to his sovereign will. But there's also human responsibility side mm-hmm. where those who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ are in actual fact yeah, saved. Definitely. Yeah, so so there is that because um, when you look at Romans chapter 1, <laughs> when God finally judges people yes he he says or his word says they'll be without an excuse because because they had a responsibility as well um so yeah i think um that's we 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 have the responsibility to respond to the call just like every christian also has a responsibility to live a holy life i mean even after we are saved we it's not like it's not like it's it's smooth sailing we still have choices to make we still have decisions to make in order to obey god's commands or not um so 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 he yes he causes us to obey him but even in that <laughs> there's the old man who is still struggling with from within which paul says um the things i want to do i do not do but the things that i do finish it off that's Romans 7 <laughs> so so basically we 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 are given this um this desire to live for him we are given this desire to come to him as savior but at the end of the day we still need to um outwork that um even with what we're given so okay so so let me let me fill in a couple of other yeah gaps in terms of the order of salvation we have the foreknowledge of god before the foundation of the world the predestination god choosing before time even began who would be saved Mm -hmm. we have the election of god god Mm -hmm. sovereignly choosing all those who'd be saved we have god regenerating those who will actually be saved yeah the truth though is that in this we also need to add you spoke about a universal call and an effectual call we need to add evangelism that in actual fact faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of the lord so god has not only um has not only sovereignly dictated uh, those who would be saved but he's also dictated the means by which they will be saved Mm -hmm. and they will be saved by hearing the gospel message Mm -hmm. uh, of jesus christ Mm -hmm. we then have faith 
um, that we exercise belief and trust in this message of the gospel, yeah. the good news that we have heard. We have conversion, this, yeah. this kind of, this changing, right? This, yeah. this turning um, from, from sin and turning to God. Mm -hmm. And then we have the Christian life, which is a life of perseverance, a life of repentance, a justification which comes from God, yeah. um, freeing one from the penalty of sin, mm -hmm. ongoing sanctification, um, ongoing becoming more and more Christ-like from one degree of glory to the next. Mm -hmm. um, and then finally, <laughs> because we are not sanctified in this world in a perfect sense, yeah. we are sanctified in this world in a progressive sense, finally one day we will stand before and stand in front of Jesus Christ mm. as our Lord and our Savior and mm. um, in glorified bodies bodies which have no vestige of sin remaining God will remove all sin from our life yeah. and from our presence uh, this is something which we keenly look forward to but in terms of the order of salvation it is something which starts in eternity past continues until a moment of salvation which includes the conversion perseverance repentance and justification then goes through our entire lives yeah. and ends up in glorification which is eternity future it it it, it, it encapsulates all of time and, and god ultimately receives all of the glory mm. of salvation um for this reason it's a it's a good question to start on sure. it's 10 o'clock yeah and when we come back from the break, yeah. we are going to hear from Glenn Williams, who has a great point to yeah. be made yeah. um, regarding the order of salvation and the benefits of the order of salvation. Mm -hmm. And then we need to get onto a couple of questions that have been asked by Janice, um, by Teresa, and by others, including um, Willem. We are looking forward to continuing the conversation with you after we go to a song and then advertisement break. Well, folk, it is good to be with you for the second hour of the show. You're joining myself, Mark Penrith, on Table Talk, together with my partner in crime extraordinaire, Tepo Pizzo. Uh, we are enjoying the biblical questions and answers that you guys are asking live on air. We started off by talking about the order of salvation, which was a question which actually came in before the show, um, and so we could be a little bit prepped for that. But uh, from this point on, <laughs> we're going to move into some of the live questions. Tepo, are you ready? Seatbelt on? Definitely. <laughs> They've been pouring in. Bring them on. <laughs> They've been pouring in as we have been talking, brother. Yeah. So uh, let's just uh, draw the last uh, hour of the show to an end. We were talking about the order of salvation. Yeah. Um, a long-time listener, um, Glenn Williams, made a couple of comments. He said, a benefit of considering the order of salvation is that it causes us to see that it is God who saves, freeing mm. us mm. from the sinful tendency to take any credit for our own salvation. And therefore, we cannot proclaim, I chose God, but rather God chose me. Amen. And he ends off the paragraph by saying, sole deo gloria, mm. which is to God be the glory alone and I, yeah i just want to affirm what what glenn says glenn, mm. you, you're a hundred percent correct and really for me when i look at the order of salvation what i walk away with is a magnified view mm. of jesus christ 
Um, you know, a, a, a magnifying glass make or a magnifying glass makes something which is small, big, but a telescope makes something which is very big um, uh, visible <laughs> to mm. us. We don't always see it clearly, and I think when I gaze at the order of salvation, that's what happens. I actually see the bigness, the eminence, the majesty, the splendor, the awesomeness of God, and I praise Him all the more for it. Um, Glenn goes on to say in a, in a second statement, when you think about it, because God exists in eternity and it's not constrained by time, foreknowledge, predestination and calling are not sequential time-based actions on his part, but logical aspects of his decree that occurs a one-time event before the foundation of the world. Yes, I agree with that as well. Um, and we certainly covered it as we were looking at systematic theology um, a few months ago as we looked at soteriology. Yeah. Oh, actually, I guess a few months ago we weren't looking at soteriology, but weeks. we were looking at theology proper yeah. uh, a few months ago. And as we looked at the various attributes of God and specifically his eternality, yeah. um, this idea of God existing outside of time mm -hmm. and therefore as 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 these decrees are made outside of time, they are one sort of events that actually impact all of time. Yeah. As he sees it laying yeah. before him, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, mm -hmm. um, the author um, of all. Uh, thanks for that, Glenn, really appreciate it. We're gonna go on to a couple of the questions that have come in since we started. Janice asks, Temple, this one is for you. What are the major views of the timing of the rapture from Janice in Cartonville, you can kick us off with the question and I will cut in once you have... Re repeat that again? <laughs> what, are the, what are the major views of the rapture and the timing of the rapture? The major views? Um, so I think there's, 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 there's two views um, that, I, that come to mind. Well, there may be more. Um, but I was what you call a <laughs> pre-trip. <laughs> so basically, um, there's that, uh, so the pre-trip basically happens before the tribulation, which is the whole seven year period of hardship. Um, so that is the one view. There's a mid-trip, <laughs> which is the rapture that happens between, um, the seven years, which is three and a half years. So before the great tribulation or the, the hardest time of the tribulation, that's that view. And then there's a post trip. The post trip happens after the seven year period of hardship. And now you, you would ask, why would that happen <laughs> after the hardship? Um, so there, there's, there's a theological answer for that, um, of which I think Grudem talks about. And I think he takes that stance. Maybe just say Grudem is one of the systematic theologians. Yes, 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 yes. Well read. Yeah. So, so he makes the case. I think, I think that's his stance, by the way. Um, so, so he makes the case that even during hardship, God can still, um, uh, uh protect his people, uh, throughout that period. So that's, that's the three, um, uh, what is this, uh, views when it comes to tribulation. Well, I said two. I, I remember there's three now. Well, I'm <laughs> yeah. going to actually add in a fourth. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so, so you are right. Um, so, so in actual fact, Janice, maybe just to say that when we talk about the rapture, we are talking about a subset of Christian belief. Mm. Um, so there are actually a multiplicity of views yeah. when it comes to the subject of eschatology, which is 
um, the study of the future things, yeah. things that will happen uh, in the future. And when we look at the study of what will happen in the future, there are kind of a, a, a number of views, including a partial, let's go with partial preterists rather than full mm. preterists, mm -hmm. uh, the understanding that, that the majority of events that occurred in the book of Revelation in fact happened in AD 77. There's mm. also the A-Mill view, which is the view that, that in actual fact the millennial kingdom is right now, we're experiencing it as the church advances towards mm -hmm. the ultimate um, uh, coming of Jesus Christ, the second coming of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. uh, the partial preterists are, believe that the world is advancing. Uh, you know, yeah. things are getting better and better until eventually uh, in summation Christ comes again. Uh, and then there's the dispensational view, which is what the rapture would really fall under. Dispensationalists um, really saying that there's kind of a great pause happening at the moment, a church age that God has uh, engaged in various different dispensations from uh, the beginning, uh, a dispensation of innocence, Adam and Eve, government uh, after the sin, uh, after the fall, uh, and, and so it carries on the law under Moses. Um, and, and currently we're in a, an age of grace, an age where, where God is collecting in the nations. And the next moment in, in well, a pre-tribulation rapture would say that yeah. the next moment, the next moment in unfulfilled prophecy would be the secret rapture, not secret as in no one will know about it, but secret <laughs> as in we don't know the day, the time, or the hour, mm. the secret rapture of the church. There are dispensationalists that would hold to a midpoint rapture and mm -hmm. dispensationalists that would hold to an endpoint rapture. Mm -hmm. And then I told you, because you started with two and then you ended up with three. And yeah. I told you there actually is a fourth view. And Mentia. that is what's called a pre-wrath rapture. That the rapture happens just before the great day mm. of the Lord. It's, a, it's another nuance yeah, yeah. Uh, amongst kind of rapture thinking I just throw it out there because yeah. it is interesting um, yeah. and Janice just to say that some of this may be somewhat confusing although there are plenty of passages that you can go to read about future things including the end of the book of Matthew kind of Matthew 24 uh, and following uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 would be another great point to go and check out 1 Corinthians chapter 16 as well as the whole book of Revelation after the first three chapters, uh, the letters to the churches, uh, where, where John talks about end times and about future things in apocalyptic language. Uh, my encouragement would be to read God's word. But ultimately, when we speak about future things, um, what we must end out in is glorifying God because he has made it clear that ultimately Jesus Christ is king and he is coming for his bride to establish it. That's what gets us excited about the future. As we look at the book of Revelation, as we turn to the last couple of pages, as we read those great and glorious words, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come. We are excited because we know that our future is secured in Jesus Christ and that he is coming again for his Bride. Now, sometimes when mm -hmm. we speak about eschatology, what happens is all the rest of the questions for the rest of the show become eschatological. <laughs> and so, so in actual fact, if I was any wiser, I'd just move the eschatology to yeah. the end of the show. Yeah. But fortunately, we've got a couple of really good questions that have come through 
um, while we have been talking. Uh, let's go to Teresa's question because that's a, that's a, was an excellent one. Yeah. Uh, Teresa, as usual, has a three-point question, um, and they are related to, wait for it, annihilism. Uh, Teresa, mm. where do you read <laughs> that you get all of these fascinating mm. questions from? That's a great question. He says, would pastors who promote annihilism be seen as false teachers with a question mark? Would pastors who promote annihilism mm -hmm. be seen as false teachers? I, I guess this is looking for an opinion. I, I would be interested to hear what yours is. I'm going to offer mine straight after. Yeah. Um, yeah. How would you answer Teresa's question? Would pastors who believe in annihilism or teach annihilism be seen as false teachers? So let me just, uh, just to refresh my memory, Annihilism means nothingness. So, so is it after death that the that the person's is it is it that the person becomes nothing? Well, let, 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 yeah. well, yeah. Actually, let me give you a yeah, let me yeah. give you a working definition as I yeah. understand. Yeah. But but you actually hit it. Yeah. After death, a person becomes nothing. In other words, uh, it circumvents the doctrine of hell and yeah. an eternal yeah. state. Of of punishment mm -hmm. um, or wrath, uh, yeah. Uh, in yeah. terms of of bearing the wrath of God's judgment after death. Okay, so <laughs> wow, um, yeah, definitely that's a false teaching. Uh, so actually, I think I would I would go as far as saying that's heresy, uh, because because it has. Yeah, it has great consequences. Like what? I mean, um, to say that it's got great consequences, tell me, what kind of consequences are you seeing wrapped up in this theology? Yeah, 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 yeah. So basically, <laughs> you cannot um, uh, 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 preach to people and about the, 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 the what's the word? The, I'm thinking of as a, the holiness of God. It's <laughs> that mm. you cannot uh, 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 teach people about the true holiness of God. Him being um, um, a hater of sin. Him being because honestly, if if you see if you see the future as nothingness, that there there will be uh, no great consequences after death, then what's the motivation of living a Christ-like life? Because then um, you not you're not looking forward to praising God forever. Because if there's nothingness, what happens beyond the grave? Mm. So 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 there's those consequences. Whereas we know that um, when we are saved, when we um, die, we are with God, and eternally with all the saints, we will be worshiping Him. Um, it it just doesn't make sense. Like so so even the person so that means a person who lives for God, who lives in obedience to God, and a person who wants nothing to do with God, um, who is not saved, who lives an abhorrent life. Uh, there's no difference when they die. There's <laughs> there's there's no yeah. It's 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 hectic because it has eternal consequences. Um, when it comes to that, but now I think I remember. So I'm not sure if if this is in any way related to nihilism, because now things are coming back. So um, I studied a while ago. Uh, I think it's related to nihilism that they, there's gonna come a time. Now this is probably another theology. There's gonna come a time that God would not, because He's a loving God. There's this there's this uh, study that. 
God will not judge those who didn't believe in his son forever. So, so there's going to come a time where he just eventually saves them out of hell. So that because he's a loving God, so he is going to now I'll, I'll get I'll get to the theological term for that um, because because I've studied that and I was like what <laughs> so yeah so basically it's 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 doing away with God being this uh, angry bloodthirsty kind of looking God as people would say if we say God is a God who is holy who will judge people eternally in hell and there's no visiting hours in hell there's no time out there's no it's just get out of jail free card exactly so it's just eternal it's basically that just like eternal life is eternal eternal damnation is eternal and you never get used to it yeah so Tepo, as i'm as i'm listening to you i i, I I'm, I'm thinking through some of what you've said and i'm thinking through some of what i've I've thought in the past as well as some of the the names that I, I know that hold to nihilism. So th- this is going to be interesting. Okay, mm-hmm. so so maybe just to your question, Teresa, it's related to um, would you consider teachers who teach a nihilism to be false teachers? I would say this: a nihilism is a false doctrine. Yeah, that is clear according to God's word. You, you have only to read through the book of Matthew, and you will find very quickly that Jesus Christ Himself believes and teaches in a literal hell, and it's not a nice place. Gnashing of teeth. It is a place where the fire does not go out. Um, he describes it as a place of pain and a place of regret and a place where those who are in it are in great remorse. Uh, it, is, it is part of the teachings of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so to teach against it is really to teach against the clear teachings of Jesus. Um, and so I would say it clearly would be a false doctrine. It's not one of those doctrines that are up for grabs. And the reason why it's not up for grabs <laughs> is because it affects not just our understanding of future things. So mm-hmm. it's not just about heaven and hell, heaven mm-hmm. being a nice place, hell being a nasty place. Let's get rid of the nasty and just have a heaven, a, a carrot um, for those who are good uh, in the sky. Hell is connected to the doctrine of the fall of man into sin the holiness of God in terms of his separation from sin, uh, the holiness and justice of God in terms of the reality that he will judge sin and sinners. Um, and then it's related to the doctrine of salvation in terms of what we are saved from. Mm. Uh, ultimately, the doctrine of salvation is wrapped up in this truth. God saves us from himself, from his righteous wrath against sin and sinners. God saves us for himself. He saves us that, that he might draw us to himself, that we might worship him forever and ever. And God saves us for himself, uh, mm-hmm. that we might worship him forever and ever and magnify his glorious name. Uh, a nihilism, a teaching that really circumvents hell or minimizes hell or takes hell out of the picture, undermines this great and glorious gospel that, yeah. that we are saved um, from our sin and we are ultimately saved to God's glory. And nihilism also undermines uh, the doctrine of Christology, um, that, that the, the, the great price that Jesus Christ paid <laughs> was paid because it was necessary. It was necessary to save man from a miserable state that he found himself in, not just sin, but also the consequences of sin and the penalty of sin. 
And that Jesus Christ on the cross, when he declares it is finished, it truly was finished, <laughs> and he had dealt not just with the state of sin, not just with the consequences of sin, but ultimately with the penalty of sin in our lives, mm. that we might be justified and declared holy before God and saved from the wrath of God which is to come. I'm thinking of passages in Scripture such as uh, Romans chapter 2, verse 5 uh, and following. But it also then impinges on the doctrine of eschatology, uh, which we spoke about. You get to the end of the book of Revelation, yeah. and you have a picture of a great white throne judgment as Jesus ultimately stands as the righteous judge of the living and the dead. And on that day, books are opened, and people try and appeal to their works. Books of works are opened. They appeal to their works, to their good works, in order mm -hmm. to try and make themselves good enough to escape from the wrath of God. Yeah. Uh, before Jesus are all the death, all the dead of uh, all creation. The sea has given up its dead. The grave has given up its dead. All stand before Christ. They want to flee him, but they can't. Yeah. He, he stands uh, in absolute absolute righteous and holy light. The uh, darkness desires to flee from it, but mm. flee from him, but darkness can't. And on that day, unless your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, mm -hmm. you will be cast into an eternal hell. The call on men and women in this life, because it is appointed for all men to die and thereafter face judgment. The yeah. call on men and women right now is to repent of their sins, to turn away from their love for sin, their love for the things of this world, to turn away from all of that and to put one's faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior. You must do it immediately. You must do it at once. You must do it and flee from the wrath which is to come. So I would say that um, in response to the question, Teresa, that annihilism certainly is a false teaching. The question mm. now becomes, is, does teaching annihilism <laughs> make one a false teacher? And I would say, um, to a great extent, surely it is a massive red flag yeah. um, that one must wave and ask questions as to, as to how this doctrine has impacted other doctrines. Mm. The sticky thing comes in that there are some good evangelicals mm. that are certainly worth reading that have held and advocated for nihilism. Mm -hmm. So let me give you a couple, you know, and yeah. just put them out yeah. there. Look, there, there's some guys who I would certainly put in the false teaching camp yeah. that hold to nihilism as the basket of false teachings that they teach. But good guys that have made cases for nihilism would mm. include John Stott. I think mm. it's like toward the end uh, of, I'm just trying to remember which book it was. Um, oh, it's not coming to mind. Yeah. Uh, John Stott, um, uh, C.S. Lewis, mm. I, I think it was about chapter 21 of Mere Christianity. I got to the, the mm. end of Mere Christianity. I'd wet through most of the book. It's mm. an amazing book. You get to the end of the, the book mm. and you scratch your head and you go, but hang on, wait, C.S. Lewis, what are you saying here? <laughs> uh, and he's kind of like an evangelical superhero. Yeah. Um, one, of, one of my personal favorite commentators, mm. and he has become a favorite commentator over time. I can mm. remember there was a time where I probably would, in fact, I, I, I might have destroyed one or two of his books because I <laughs> knew that he held to the doctrine of nihilism. Mm. But over time, I've grown to appreciate him as William Barclay. Yeah. Um, William Barclay held to nihilism. And so you have, oh, I mean, a great comment, a great commentator, F.F. Mm. F. F. Bruce, oh, yeah. said that, and now we, we're talking in the ultra-conservative camp, mm. F.F. Bruce said that the... That, that the um, 
the jury's out in terms of whether this doctrine stands or falls. Mm. I, I'm paraphrasing, I can't mm. remember the exact uh, statement that he made. Um, but he certainly didn't like throw it out as quickly as I might throw it out. Mm. Uh, and so I, I would say a teacher is false as you look at, the, at all of their uh. teaching. And I would say if a person holds to nihilism, it is a massive red flag which has mm. been waved vigorously mm. And when it indicates other doctrines which have also fallen, such as Christology, such as uh, a high view of scripture, bibliology, mm. um, such as um, some really wonky eschatology, um, such <laughs> as, and as far as it impacts particularly soteriology, the doctrine yeah. of salvation, that is when, without a doubt, mm. we would put a teacher into the false teacher camp. And mm. I haven't listed false teachers, but some of them would be uh, easy to identify. Yeah. They would kind of wave a flag that love wins out in the end. Uh, that was an indication of who I'm talking about. <laughs> um, when did this teaching become a big deal in church history? Teresa goes on to ask. Well, you know, in actual fact, um, as we look at church history, I, I went to a Wikipedia article um, while Temple <laughs> was speaking. Um, really, from Tertullian all the way through to Luther, um, the church has held, has held to a um, common stance on both heaven and hell. Mm. However, there have been people all the way through church history mm. who have held to the minority position, and that includes uh, early church fathers, um, a strong case within Ro the Roman Catholic tradition, and you think of purgatory, for yeah, instance, yeah. Um, a, a, although purgatory isn't a nihilism, purgatory is really that love wins out and people ultimately are reconciled mm. after mm. spending a, a, a very long time in, in pain and anguish, <laughs> paying off their sins as if mm. they could pay it off rather than Jesus Christ <laughs> paying it off on the cross. Um, uh, but but there have been, um, particularly in early church history, minority groups which mm. held um, to nihilism. It wasn't really until um, Methodism, and particularly John Wesley mm -hmm. um, preached a, a sermon um, related to nihilism, which, which, which really doesn't sound like he's condemning it. It sounds mm -hmm. like he's advocating for it. Uh, that nihilism started to enter into mainstream conversation and really only entered into kind of mainstream debate amongst evangelical Christians in the, in the latter part of the 1900s. Mm -hmm. um, and it's picked up steam. But there again, so is almost every other false teaching under the sun, picked yeah. up steam in the last, say, 20 years uh, or so. Uh, Caesar, uh, Caesar, a good friend of ours and a regular listener, says, Mark and Teppel, thanks for a great show as always. I'm enjoying questions that I uh, would like to add my view on the order of salvation. I'm reminded of a book I read a while uh, back, uh, which I do recommend, and it's John Piper's book, Finally Alive, and he makes the critical point that we are simply passive at regeneration. Sure. We contribute nothing. In Ooh. fact, as Jonathan Edwards says, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. Wow. That is such a brilliant quote. Thanks for adding it, Caesar. Um, really appreciate your interaction. I feel as if I have missed a question that was asked somewhere along the path. Uh, questions come in, what is the best way to maneuver when coming to this topic? Well, the best way to maneuver is by going to scripture, by <laughs> opening up God's word. I'm fairly certain that Jesus starts to speak about 
hell. Yeah. Um, in terms of the woes um, in the book of Matthew, they're, they're pretty easy to find. I'm going to go, I was going to go with Matthew chapter 6, but um, they're not mm. Matthew chapter 6. That's still Sermon on the Mount. Um, yeah. But the woes of Christ um, would be a great place to, uh, where he's declaring woe after woe after woe. Um, upon the Pharisees in the book of Matthew would be a great place to go. I mean, as you read the text, it's very difficult to come to another conclusion other than the reality that Jesus Christ is speaking of hell. Uh, another good place to go would be the parable of Lazarus and the death of Lazarus. Um, uh, the uh, parables normally are, um, and I said the parable, I actually... <laughs> I actually scuppled my own argument. Um, but uh, the death of Lazarus and the poor man um, isn't actually framed as a parable by Christ. It, it, it's framed more uh, as a reality which he is appealing to. And then just turn to the back of your Bible, to the book of Revelation. And when you get um, after the discussion of the millennial kingdom and the return of Christ in <laughs> Revelation chapter 19, I'm just taking a dig at temple. Um, <laughs> you have the great white throne judgment and uh, and and just the language there is eternal language and certainly um, speaking of torment um, and judgment. Uh, those would be the best places to go, the Bible. Um, and mm. uh, uh, and then to interpret other verses which um, which are harder to understand through the... Uh, through the wealth uh, of biblical uh, conversation which you have um, through the wealth of um, of God's word. Um, thanks for that the question. The are in chapter 23. The woes are in chapter 23. Thanks for finding that for me. Yeah. Uh, Glenn Williams says that nihilism has its foundation in nihilism, which is the philosophical position that argues that past and current human existence is without objective meaning, purpose, and comprehensible mm. truth or essential value. Uh, it maintains that there's no reasonable proof for the existence of God or a creator, that true morality doesn't exist, and that objective secular ethics are impossible. Um, there's a number of requests for prayer uh, for mm -hmm. a number of people, and we certainly will be praying even after the show for some of the prayer requests that have come in. Uh, thank you for raising those, I think particularly of Brie um, and others that have raised um, prayer uh, requests. Um, and then from, uh, uh, from Facebook, uh, just a number of greetings from Renell, uh, and from others, from Teresa and from others. Thank you very much for those. We really do appreciate the interactions. If you're listening in this morning and you would like to interact with us in the last part of the show, we've just got a few minutes left um, until we come to an end. Let me tell you how you can send in a question. Uh, you can engage with us on Facebook. Uh, you can send a, a, a comment right underneath where we are live. We will see that in studio. You can send a voice note on WhatsApp or Telegram. The telephone number is 082-657-2729. You can tweet on Twitter. The handle is at 657AM. And you can phone live into studio. The telephone number is 012-334-1322. We do love engaging with you as you listen in with us. Um, Tepo, yes, Mark. Uh, I'm interested mm -hmm. uh, uh, to just hear briefly as we wait for our next question to come in. Yeah. Um, in terms of the gospel, because we've been speaking quite a lot about the gospel today uh, mm -hmm. as it relates to the order of salvation, 
the gospel as it relates to nihilism and how that undermines some of the proclamation of the gospel. Tips, how do you go about um, presenting the gospel in its simplest form? So if a, a listener is listening in today and either they are intrigued or maybe they are, maybe they're shaken. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're like, there's a, there's a judgment to come mm-hmm. uh, and there is a promise of hell for those who are not in good favor with God. Mm-hmm. How then can I come into good favor with God? How can I be saved from this wrath that is to come? How would you go about presenting the gospel to anyone who might ask? Uh, and there also might be listeners who, yeah. even as you consider the order of salvation and you hear that evangelism is part of that order, mm-hmm. um, even as you consider the doctrine of hell and you realize that you've got friends and family that need to hear about Jesus Christ, how would you go about sharing the gospel with a person who is in need of salvation? So I think, and this is what I've always done, um, so I find that, uh, so, so if you get a person who is at a place where they are convicted of their sin, so that would take a different format as to how the gospel is presented. But if you're going to a person who is not yet convicted of their sin, that would also take another format. So now, usually, if... Okay, I, so let, yeah. let's, like, let's role play, yeah. okay? Yeah. Um, we're sitting on a bus, we're going down to Cape Town. Yeah. Um, and you strike up a conversation with me, yeah. or I notice that you've got a Bible in your hand, I ask yeah. you, are you a Christian? Mm-hmm. And you feel led by the Spirit to share yeah. the gospel with me. How would you go about <laughs> sharing the gospel with me? Thanks for that, because now I remember how I used to share the gospel in a taxi when I was much younger. Yeah. <laughs> so, you, you, before COVID. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so um, what I used to do was... Um, especially, especially amongst uh, black people, it's normal <laughs> to go to church, right? So I would, I would ask a question, um, which church do you go to? So I assume that you go to church because it's normal in a black community. So that would then open the, 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 the conversation for me presenting Jesus Christ. Yeah. So if they say, um, I go to this church, then I would have an idea as to where they are but if somebody says um i don't go to church then i would then say why (laughs) and then obviously they would tell me why but then i would tell them what's the reason to go to church so i would talk then about uh jesus christ uh him having died for our sins and the reason that people should be going to church is to worship him because of what he's done for them but um so now obviously you need to get a person and now i'm going to talk about how i get to the gospel right yeah. um so i would then ask a follow-up question is if you were to die <laughs> today yes. Yes. where do you think you're gonna go so 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 now there's That's a great only, question That's yeah good ee3 i think yes it, yes, it, yes. It ask those questions evangelism explosion Three. Okay. I think that's what E is there for. Okay, but anyway, yeah. So, 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 um, I'd ask that question, um, because I know most people think about that. And back then, before all of this craziness that's happening, there were only two answers: <laughs> either heaven or hell. Yes. But now there's more options because, like you know, there's, 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 there's. We live now in a postmodern world, and there's more options <laughs> do yeah. that okay but 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 what i found that it's uh like you you have only two options that people would say they'd say heaven and i'd ask why 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 heaven 
why do you think you're gonna go to heaven and they i will hear what they believe um oh i'm a good person like but no that's not why you get to heaven so you get to heaven because you believed in the lord jesus christ and because he died for your sins on the cross that if you believe or if you confess with your mouth that jesus is lord and that god raised him from the dead then you will be saved and that's what gets you to heaven salvation through christ not your works and 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 i remember so in a in a setting whereby uh people don't necessarily ask you questions so i've done um evangelism at the clinic the local clinic so what i do there is i present the reality that we all gonna die Mm. um and i present the reality that all of us are sinful um so pretty pretty much the um, now forget his name ray comfort way mm. <laughs> so so it's the way of the master yeah the way of the master so so i present this 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 um in inevitable reality that we're all gonna die one day and so when we stand in front of god or when we have to give an account for how we lived or when we are judged what are we gonna say yeah. Is it because of what I did? Is, is it because my family went to church? <laughs> is it because uh, my granny used to pray for me? Um, or is it because I personally placed my faith and trust in Jesus Christ? And so I present, like I, I would normally talk about all the kind of sins that exist. I would talk about um, that. And I would say, God is going to judge people for that very sin. Mm. And so when they sit in, I mean, I don't know them. <laughs> I don't know who they are, right? So obviously by mentioning the sin, a person gets convicted. And so I'm saying God will judge that particular sin. And he's going to judge those people who are living in that particular sinful life. Mm. And Jesus has paid the price for that particular sin. So you could either be saved by repenting and placing your faith in Jesus Christ for that particular sin, changing your life, moving away from that life to a life that honors him, and you will be saved on, the, on that day. Um, and so that would, that's basically how I would present the gospel to them, saying there's a way out, there's a solution, and he was given for us, and that's Jesus Christ. That's how you are saved. So, I mean, very similar for me, yeah. My, the, most, the, the most opportunities that I have to present the gospel now mm-hmm. um, are in counseling situations. Yes. I'm sitting with a person and I'm counseling them. Mm-hmm. And normally a first counseling session would involve a gospel presentation, yeah. uh, an explicit gospel presentation. The question in terms of E3 that, that I would normally ask as a leading question mm-hmm. um, toward the gospel would be, if you had to die tonight and mm-hmm. stand before God and he asked you the question, why should I let you into heaven? Yeah. What would your answer be? Yeah. And and invariably, I mean, on a few occasions, people have like delighted my soul and answered, Jesus' blood has covered me. Mm. Um, I've put my faith and my trust in him. Mm-hmm. He's my only hope. But nine times out of ten, in fact, probably even higher odds than that, mm. um, a person will respond, well, I, I, I'm a good person. I, I've tried to live the best life I can. <laughs> and at that stage, we would then start to engage, well, well, is good actually good enough yeah. for a God who's truly sure. good? Yeah. Um, and we'd start to talk about the holiness of God 
and his present wrath against sin and sinners mm-hmm. uh, and and the need for a holy God to righteously judge if he is to be righteous yeah. um, to judge and that the wages of sin is death and that the person like all other people have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God mm-hmm. and at that stage I would then present the person of Jesus Christ who died to cover sin who on the cross declared it was finished the wrath of God was satisfied um, and who died that, that we might live and then the call, the, the universal call is yeah. made, uh, that you are to repent of your sin and put your faith and your trust, not in your own works and your own goodness or in your own righteousness, but yeah. in the righteousness of God, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and that by putting your faith and your trust in him, you might have eternal life. Mm. Um, that would probably be the most common way uh, that, that I have shared the gospel over the last a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Uh, one other way, um, which I've enjoyed, and that's when I meet a person and, uh, and, and ask them those kinds of questions and they respond, well, I'm a good person, would then be to go to way of the master kinds of questions. Well, yeah. if you're good, um, let, let's talk about God's standard of good, um, the mm-hmm. law. Mm-hmm. Uh, the law says, you know, you must not commit adultery. Jesus mm-hmm. says, if you even look at a woman with lust in your eyes, uh, you have committed adultery. Mm-hmm. Um, Normally, most people who are honest at that stage will recognize that they yeah. are sinful. Uh, do not commit murder, but if you have even you know, expressed anger in your heart towards your brother, you have, you know, raka, you have sinned against God. Mm. Most people recognize that they are, are sinful. Um, when you ask a person, have you always honored your mother and your father? Have you never told a lie? Uh, mm-hmm. Never given false witness? Uh, have you never stolen anything in your entire life? Even People normally answer no. <laughs> and, and you say, like, never? I mean, honestly, uh, mm-hmm. even as a child, even your mom's cookies, um, you know, uh, most people as they go through the Ten Commandments are very quick to acknowledge that they have sinned against their brothers as in terms of the last six commandments. It's when you f- then focus on on, on the commandments towards God, never committed blasphemy. Yeah. Um, always honored God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. That people recognize how truly short of God's holy standard they have fallen. Um, and you are right. Until a person recognizes that they are a sinner, mm. <laughs> they have no need for a savior. Until yeah. they recognize that the wrath of God is leveled against both sin and sinners. Psalm mm. 5 verse 5. Um, there is no need for a savior. Mm. Um, then, you know, Jesus could have died as a great example yeah. um, to us. But once you realize that you are a sinner before a holy God, there is a desperate need for a sinner who is as big as Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And, um, and, and I certainly have enjoyed that mechanism um, for passing on uh, the gospel onto men and women. In, in terms of preaching, I've often given the gospel in a slightly different way. And mm-hmm. I would imagine those who are teachers, those who are parents, mothers, teaching children, uh, a great way of sharing the gospel is in narrative form um, as a story. So just tell the story of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth in untested perfection. Uh, describe who God is, that he is holy and that he is righteous. Describe who man is, created in the image of God, mm. uh, with the you know, ability um, uh, to honor God in every way and to magnify his holy na- ma- name, created as, as stewards over the creation uh, which he has entrusted to them. Uh, but then tell the story of the fall, Adam and Eve in the garden choosing to rebel against 
against God, mm. falling into sin, naked and ashamed. They flee from the presence of God, whereas before they had walked with him. Tell the story of Cain and Abel and the descent of man, even worse, you know, going from going from sinning against God to, to murdering one another. Mm. Uh, the story gets even muckier after that as, as Lamech takes two wives and sexual immorality enters into the story of man until eventually in Genesis chapter 6 man is so evil that God even regrets um, expresses remorse at having created man Uh, and yet God's nature is always to save he saves Noah Mm. he saves a lion throughout all of redemptive history how does he save them well men put their faith on the promise that was to come even in the garden of Eden even as man sinned even as God cursed the snake he promised that from the seed of the woman would come one who would ultimately crush Satan's head who is the promise that man throughout all the ages put their faith in men in the old testament as well as men in the new well it's the person of jesus christ he came into this world and he lived a perfect life the life that you and i could never live Mm. and he died a death that we could never live a perfect sacrifice blemishless and pure the lamb of god that takes away the sins of the world on the cross as he died he declared it is finished as Mm. he drank the very last dregs of god's wrath for sin the call on our lives is to look at the person of jesus and put our faith and our trust in him that narrative form of the gospel mm-hmm. ending in a call uh, ending in a universal call a call for man to repent to turn away from their sin and to put their faith and their trust in jesus christ as their lord and their savior uh, i find that that works very well in sunday school situations it works very well as you telling the gospel to your children mm-hmm. um, so instead of propositional statements god is holy man is sinful christ is the way repent for the forgiveness of sins rather the kind of the story of biblical theology uh, I find that works incredibly well and is also fun to tell over and over again as you <laughs> shadow in the stories and tell more and more of the biblical narrative. Yeah. Um, you know, we're coming up for Christmas in like a month's time. It's crazy if you went to the... Well, look, I mean, I don't actually go to shops, but I would imagine <laughs> if you go to the shops now, um, the, 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 the Christmas carols would have started um, wherever you head. Um, as people have... Christmas, as people have December, as people have maybe social engagements with family and friends on their minds as things start to slow down towards December. I'm hoping that people will have opportunities to share the gospel with family and friends around bries and around dinners and at other events. Any other kind of words of wisdom, Temple, that you might uh, that you might want to pass on to them as they start to prepare their hearts and their minds to share their faith with people that they love? Yeah. Yeah, so I think it it also becomes tricky because um, some people, especially in families, so so they'll refer to the saved couple as the pastors. (laughs) Oh, the pastors are coming over today, and and it's usually made a joke. Um, So, but what I what I what I would say is um, don't back down uh, because that's your life, Um, and and even even in terms of um just uh living in front of them i think i think the other thing that becomes difficult is um as you are with them you already know what what they think of you uh but i think 
sometimes it it has to do with our approach when we are um, with them and we present the gospel. Yes, we know that what we believe is true, um, but in most cases, you'll find that um, their rejection is not because they reject Christ as our conduct or how we present the gospel to them um, with a lack of humility. And so I think what we would do best as well is um, as we as we um, present the gospel or as we live our lives in front of them is remember to be humble. Remember that even us, when we were when we were not saved, um, we 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 had people um, share the gospel countless times with us. Um, and that we, even ourselves as Christians currently, uh, cannot claim any, uh, what is it, any glory or any, any or boast in any how um, for what we've received. And so I think those who make an impact, um, and yes, there are different circumstances and there are different people and yeah, so those who make a great impact in the lives of family and those around them is basically their, their approach, their way of speech, their way of living, and just the whole concept of humility. I mean, we are told to be humble as Christians. Uh, it's not like, um, I know what's right. You're not going to tell me this is the only way. You have to. You have to. Because there's that way of sharing the gospel which uh, is not uh, received well. Mm. Um, so we have to remember humility. Although we know what is right, it doesn't give us the right to bash people, to, 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 to um, uh, just present ourselves as these faultless human beings. Uh, I like that. Um, you know, on the one hand, it's very practical. So as we speak to the people that we love, be loving. Yeah. Um, as we speak about the grace that we have received from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, be gracious mm -hmm. um, to people. Um, but at the same time, friends, be bold. Uh, the truth is the gospel message is has the power to save. Yeah. Um, Paul himself says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. And it's the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. It's speaking of Jesus Christ. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Share the gospel. Do so with boldness. Do so in love. Do so with humility. Um, do so that God might be glorified in and through your lives. Um, and maybe just one more practical aspect. Um, even as you prepare your heart and your mind to share the gospel message with family and friends uh, this holiday period, begin in prayer. Begin even now, like mm -hmm. at the end of November, by praying that God will give you opportunities to share the gospel message faithfully with family and friends. If you need some help in terms of understanding the gospel, if you Google the way of the master, you'll get uh, a, a, a Ray Comfort videos and Kirk Cameron videos that might be very helpful in terms of um, preparing you to speak of the gospel message. Um, there are other great resources that are available. If you're looking for just the gospel in a very simple form, you can type got questions into your, uh, into your Google and the gospel. And as you follow that Google, 
Google will take you to the right place. Got Questions has got some great shorthand articles uh, in terms of sharing your faith with your friends. As we come to the end of the show this morning, our prayers go out to all the elders and deacons who hold the line in local churches, as well as to our missionaries who serve in foreign fields. Each week we also pray and we give much respect for our first responders, our police, our defense force, and for all those who dispense justice in our land, along with firefighters and paramedics and our nation's nurses who do such a good job on the front lines and medical personnel who serve alongside them, as well as for our nation's correctional service officers we pray for you each and every week you've been listening to table talk with me your host along with tepo pitzel we're going to be going to news shortly and so until next week friday do walk wisely do live holy and do testify zealously amen amen